Father, you have spoken, and we know that it is so. Thank you for being my peace, for our peace. Thank you for everything you've done for us. Thank you for this worship that we've had so far this morning. May your spirit dwell among us. In Jesus' name, amen. So it happened February the 22nd, 1980. Actually, Two things happened February 22nd, 1980. Only one of them really makes a difference in this world. First one that's not as consequential was I turned five years old that day. Not very consequential. The other thing that happened February 22nd, 1980 was the, as according to Sports Illustrated, the greatest upset in sports history. You see, it was on that day that the U.S. Olympic men's hockey team pulled off the greatest upset and beat the Soviet Union. You see, the Soviet Union team, they were professionals. They had beaten everyone, and they wasn't even close. But the U.S. team, they were the youngest team in the history of the Olympics. They had no chance against the Russians until they beat them. And as the time was winding down on the clock, sports broadcaster Al Michaels said, do you believe in miracles? Was that a miracle? You see, just because the Soviets were so heavily favored, it did, was that a miracle? Did it really mean anything in the grand scheme of things? Were lives really changed? Families strengthened, marriages saved, lives recentered, eternities altered? Was that really a God moment where God broke into human existence to reveal himself and the truth about himself? Was it really supernatural? in a spiritual moment. That was not a miracle. It was an upset. But one of the most watered-down terms in our language, I believe, is the word miracle. The underdog team wins. We call it a miracle. A politician pulls off an upset, and we call it a miracle. A player makes a shot from half court, which I have done, and trust me, it wasn't a miracle. It was pure luck. It's, we call it a miracle. But today, we're going to look at a real miracle. As we continue through the series at looking at what John tells us, and only John tells us, about the life of Jesus. And this is not just any miracle. It is Jesus' very first miracle that he ever performed. Which strikes me as odd that only one of the four Gospels would actually cover that first miracle. I would, for me, in my mind, if, if, if it's Jesus' very first miracle, I would think everyone would be talking about it and everyone would want to cover it. But for whatever reason, only John talks about this miracle. And it's a miracle that occurred in the most unlikely of places for what seemed to be the most unlikely of reasons. 
So let me read it to you. We find it in John chapter 2. It says, On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his, his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, They have no more wine. Dear woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied. My time is not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so. And the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, Everyone brings out the choice wine first. And then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you saved the best till now. This is the first of his miraculous signs Jesus performed at Cana in Galilee. He thus revealed his glory and his disciples put their faith in him. The very first miracle Jesus ever performed comes with a lot of questions as we listen to that there are a lot of questions there which was you know why did why was this the first miracle out of all the miracles Jesus performed raising the dead healing the sick giving eyesight the blind why this one it would have made more sense to do something more dramatic for your first miracle and another question why was running out of wine such a big deal what was up with what Jesus said to his mother? It seemed a bit downright disrespectful. What time hadn't come? A lot of questions surround this miracle. Let's just start off with the obvious, which is why a wedding? And to talk about that, we have to forget everything we know about weddings in our society because a first century Jewish wedding is nothing like a wedding today. They could last an entire week. It involved the entire community. They all came together. There was a procession that walked through the town, often held at night so they could actually use torches to add to its beauty and the atmosphere. The groom, or at least the groom's parents, paid for everything. It's certainly changed now. It's usually the, the bride's family that pays for it. But back then, the groom or the groom's family paid for everything. And it was serious business. Emphasis on the word business. Because the expectation was that you had to provide food and drink for that event. And it had to be better than anything else you had ever tasted. It had to be at the same quality and quantity of any wedding you had ever attended. So let's say that I threw a wedding, and I invite you to it. 
and you come and I give you good food and drink and then you throw a wedding and you invite me to it. Well, you have to give equal amounts and equal quantity and actually better than what I provide. Or it was a breach of contract, breach of conduct. And in fact, if you didn't, I could take you to court. I could sue you. There's a serious breach of protocol in that society. So when the young couple's family runs out of wine, it wasn't just awkward. It was a crime. The couple could be taken to court, they could be sued, and they could start their young marriage with a serious debt hanging over their head. It would be a crisis to run out of wine. So it seems today like it would be no big deal if that happened. But back then, it was just that big of a deal. So it's no wonder that Mary brings this up to Jesus. The fact that Mary and Jesus was there and that Mary's response in in all of this makes, makes me assume, and it's probably likely, that this was probably family. It wasn't just some random person's wedding that they were at. It was probably family, and Mary probably had a part in planning it, which is why it was such a problem for her that they were running out of wine, because it may have been partially her fault. So she tells Jesus about it. Let's take a look, another look at what she said. She said, when the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, they have no more wine. Dear woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied. My time has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. More questions, right? Why did Mary think that this was a Jesus moment? And why did Jesus seem to brush her off? What did he mean when he said that his time hadn't come? And why did Mary respond this way by telling the servants just to do whatever he said? So let's dig in a little bit. First, why did Mary go to Jesus with this? I mean, it wasn't because she was used to him doing all kinds of miracles. We're told clearly this was the first miracle. Now, she knew who he was. She knew that God was within him. But he hadn't performed any miracles to this point. She wanted him to do something in this situation. This was family, and the situation was serious. And maybe she was wondering, Jesus, you're 30 years old. It's about time to get going a little bit. You're still living at home, haven't performed any miracles. Maybe it's time, Jesus. Maybe she's wondering, when is he going to step up? When will he step forward as the Messiah? But let's look again at what Jesus says to her. Dear woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied. My time has not yet come. Now, at first, when we read this, it seems a bit abrupt, almost bordering on rude. But actually, 
that would be reading something into this that's, that's not there. You see, it's a translation issue here. That phrase, dear woman, is actually not a harsh address at all. It's the exact same phrase Jesus used when addressing her when he was hanging on the cross. This is a translation issue. It's, it's not a rude response. And the, the phrase, why do you involve me, doesn't mean what you might think either. It almost sounds like leave me alone is what we kind of read into it. But in the Greek, it really means, what does this have to do with you and me? Meaning, it's almost like Jesus saying, why would you want me to show myself for this? Here and now. Why are you, as my mother, and as someone who knows who I am, asking me to intervene if you're asking me to do this because you're my mother well then i can't see i have to answer to my heavenly father on such matters and his timing and his will is what matters now if you're asking me as a believer as a follower then understand that my time hasn't come and that's significant because in the original Greek, it actually reads, my hour hasn't come. Jesus talked about the hour that was to come throughout his ministry, a reference to the hour of his crucifixion, the hour of the cross, the hour when his mission on this earth would reach its end, when he would have to drink from that cup of death. See, if he revealed himself fully at that moment, if he had declared himself to be the Messiah, then the hour of the cross would begin. See, as soon as Jesus performs that first miracle, that path has started. He's walking that path that will eventually lead to the cross. And it wasn't time for that yet. And that's what he wanted to say to Mary, not no to the wine, but a reminder that the full hour was yet to come. But, but Jesus ultimately did hear a whisper from the Father in this moment, that it was time to set his foot on that path that would lead to the cross. Because make no mistake, with his first miracle, the journey would begin. There would be no turning back. And Mary understood that. That's why she responded the way that she did. She didn't say, oh, come on, Jesus, do this for your mom. She didn't argue with him and say, you're going to let this young couple start off with a debt like this? She didn't say, Jesus, you're God in human form. When are you going to tell everyone about it? There's no manipulation, no guilt, no impatience. Look again at what she said. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. She completely turned it over to him. For him to do whatever he wanted, however he wanted, and if he wanted. See, this really was a moment when Mary went from being his mother to being his follower. From being a parent to a disciple, from the one who had authority over him as a parent to one who stood 
under his authority as the Savior. So what happened next? Let's, let's read it again. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so, and the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, everyone brings out the choice wine first, and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best till now. So when I, I read this, I, I have to imagine what those servants felt like. As they take a, take a cup out of this water dish and it's water. And I wonder when it changed from water to wine. But they're taking this water to the master of the banquet and they're thinking, well, you might get in trouble for this. We're taking the master of the banquet water. And he's going to drink it. And we're probably going to get in trouble for this. But they trusted that Jesus told them to do. And, and remember, this is trust without ever having seen a miracle before. They didn't have a history of watching Jesus perform miracles. They went forward without any background pretty brave of them now with this passage there's other questions why so much six jars 20 to 30 gallons each that's like 120 gallons why so much but we also have to remember what we talked about weddings this was a big event for lots of people that could last a week at a time not as much as you might think it was. But there's also another reason, a, a symbolic reason. See, miracles are never just about power. Jesus never performed a miracle just to show people that he had the power to do it. There's always a reason. So what was Jesus wanting this miracle to tell us and to tell them? See, his very first miracle so what was he trying to get across? I think there are two things he was trying to get across. And both of them are fairly easy to miss. The first one was Jesus wanted us to see that God cares about the little things in our lives. He cares about the wine running out at a party, the embarrassment of a young couple and their family, the financial pressures that would come, the celebration of a wedding. This isn't just about getting your daily miracle. See, a miracle is just that. It's something exceptional. But it is about the care and concern that God has for your life his involvement in your life, his participation in your life. A drop-dead, jaw-dropping miracle will, by its very definition, be rare. 
If they were common everyday experiences, then they wouldn't be miracles. But God's activity, his power, his presence, that's meant to be daily, hourly, moment by moment in each of our lives. Now, there's, he's telling us that there's nothing too trivial for that activity, that power, that presence in our life. There's nothing in our lives that's too inconsequential for Jesus. See, I think maybe that's why he didn't do one of those grand miracles, you know, like healing somebody or giving somebody sight. I think maybe that may have been the reason why it seemed to be just a eh, ho-hum type of miracle that he starts with. There's a book that was titled, Your God is Too Small. It's the idea that we can make God too small to act in big ways, too small to change the world and to change our lives. But I think some of us need uh, the opposite book, a book titled, Your God is Too Big. Because some of us have this idea that God is so big, so distant, so removed from our lives that we don't think he has time to care about the little details in each of our lives. Things like getting along with someone at work, trying to pay a bill on time, your kids' grades in school, or make, hoping your car makes it another 10,000 miles. See, that's why knowing that wine on a wedding day matters to God matters to us as well. It tells us that God knows what we're going through, that God cares about what we're going through, and that our God is big enough to care about the small things. The second thing that I think Jesus is trying to get across in this miracle was, is even easier to miss because it's all tied up in the symbolism in this miracle. Now, there are times that people read symbolism into the Bible when it's just not there, but I believe there's real symbolism in many different aspects of this miracle. And to miss it would mean to miss the richness and depth of Jesus' first miracle and the start of his public ministry. First, the symbolism of the wedding itself. Throughout the Bible, the coming of the kingdom of God is likened to a wedding feast. Both the coming of the Messiah and even heaven itself has been likened to that wedding feast. So that the very first miracle Jesus performs happens at a wedding feast is fitting. Then there's the symbolism of running out of wine, revealing that with the coming of Christ, the old ways of religion were empty, and that he would bring a new wine for people to drink that would finally and ultimately satisfy our souls. And then the symbolism of providing wine to drink. See, as the new wine, we're to drink Jesus in fully into our lives, but also to look forward to that hour when he would drink the cup of death and ask us to drink 
that wine as well. His death on behalf of us, the wine of his blood, an idea we still carry forward to this day whenever we celebrate the communion service. Then there's the symbolism of using those ceremonial jars, which were filled with water for ritualistic cleansing. Remember back then, there's ritualistic cleansing for almost everything going on in their life, for every little thing, and they had to have a mediator on earth, the priest, to try and get right with God. But, but with Jesus' coming, with that new wine of, that Jesus brings, there would no longer be the need for that. His life, his death, his resurrection would bring full forgiveness and full cleansing. So the jars and water reflect the entire ceremonial system that Jesus would fulfill and render obsolete. And then there's the symbolism of filling the jars to the very top, showing that the old ways of doing things had run their course. There's nothing more for them to do. There's nothing to be added to their work. They had, been, they had done all that they were intended to do. And that's also why what's behind the symbolism of why so much wine, indicating that while the old way of religion could only go so far, but the life that, that Jesus brings would be overflowing and abundant, and without measure, that the wine of his life would serve far more than the people at that wedding feast, but would be available to every single one of us who accept him into our life. Then the symbolism of the quality of the wine speaks to the fact that the coming of Christ was the end of God's full revelation the fulfillment and the final act of his reaching out to the human race, that he saved the best for last. And finally, there's the symbolism of the miracle itself, which John rightly calls a sign, because that's what miracles are. They are signs. So if a miracle is a sign, what is this pointing to? What is it supporting? See, it's a sign that here is God's revelation. God is saying something to us. And the point of the miracle was to authenticate God's person, his message, and his word. Moses is a great example of this. When God told Moses to go to Egypt and demand that Pharaoh let the Israelites go, Moses was like, um, okay, but why would he listen to me? I'm just Moses. And God told him to perform signs and miracles. And God performed those. Which is why the apostle Peter said that about Jesus in Acts chapter 2. He said, God publicly endorsed Jesus of Nazareth by doing wonderful miracles, wonders, and signs through him. And then in the book of Hebrews, we read this. So we must listen very carefully to the truth we have heard, the message 
God delivered, announced by the Lord himself, and God verified the message by signs and wonders and various miracles. So what does this mean for me and for you? Beyond getting a little more insight into that into the Bible and into that very first miracle, maybe how much God really does care about us. Let's look again at the last verse. This, the first of his miraculous signs Jesus performed at Cana in Galilee. He thus revealed him his glory and his disciples put their faith in him. What did it mean for those first disciples who had started following him without any miraculous signs beforehand? They put their faith in Jesus. Seeing Jesus do this, perform this miracle, led them to have faith in him. Now the question is, what will it do for you and for me? Sure, you might say, well, fine, let me see a little water turned into wine and I'll have faith in him. But miracles didn't even have that response in Jesus' day and time. Many people saw him perform miracles. Not all of them became his followers. Miracles don't force faith, but they do invite it. So the real question is whether you will accept that invitation to believe on the basis of what God has already done to authenticate Jesus to you and to your life. Miracles have already happened. Jesus has come, died, and he rose again. And he's here now for you to engage with him. The question Will you put your faith in Jesus? Do you believe in miracles? Al Michaels had the right line, but he was talking about the wrong event. Miracles are real, and they're there to help us know Jesus more and to put our faith into him. Heavenly Father, thank you that that first miracle wasn't something grand, that it was something so small that it tells us that that you care about everything that we're going through. You care about us, the, the mundane things of our life. You care. And help us as we see the miracles that you have performed, as we see what you have done in our lives, help us to accept that invitation to fully commit our lives to you. And as we're about to sing, help us to run to you, to run to you, no matter what the situations are, help us to always run to you, because you will always be there. In Jesus' name, amen.